Hi, everyone, and welcome to another one of my uh, Podbean podcast and YouTube interviews on Gaudium at Spez 22. Uh, as you know, I mean, Gaudium at Spez 22 is a reference to a Vatican II document section 22 and i've devoted a great deal of my blog and podcast to discussing uh, ideas and then interviewing theologians that are interested in unpacking defending you know expositing the second vatican council which i think has a tremendous ongoing significance to that end i am very excited with the two guests we have today because they are the co-authors of a new book uh, uh vatican II: a very short introduction I, I, is it I have to check my glasses. Yes, it is a very short introduction is what it's called. And it's part of a series. Uh, and what's the press? Holy crap, I'm so unprepared here. Oxford. Oxford University Press. Yes, I'm, I'm pulling up my glasses because the, the image is up here and I thought I'd be able to read it really well. <laughs> I can't. But anyway, Oxford University Press, which is really uh, a very highfalutin press. So kudos to you guys. But it is I've read some of the books in this series very, and they're really good. And yours is no exception. I told uh, I told Stephen off camera that I uh, fin finally finished reading the last fourth of the book this morning over my morning coffee. And I really encourage all of my viewers and listeners, every one of you, if you're interested in Vatican II, to really rush out and buy this book, uh, because you will find, I think, no better in English, short introduction to the main themes and history and so forth, players of the council than this short but jam-packed little book. And it's also written in an extremely accessible uh, style. Uh, and so, I mean, I just can't gush about it enough. I think it's a really, really great book. And I've read a lot of books on Vatican II. And this is the best of the lot in its genre uh, of a sort of basic introduction to the text. Anyway, my guests are uh, two guys I've actually had on here before. Okay, Stephen Bullivant, who is uh, I, I interviewed you about your book, Nonverts, yeah. I do believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so Stephen is a big time sort of experts on why it is that people don't believe this here stuff no more and just sort of walk away from the church. What is the cause of Because we all just sort of assume that we know what, what causes disbelief or unbelief. And uh, it's actually more complex than we think. And then also we have Sean Blanchard. I've had you on before. Was it once or twice, Sean? Just once. Yeah. Just was Hauser with us? No, just you and me. It was just you and me. Although I, I listened to your interview with Stephen while I was jogging one day, and I felt like I was, you know, talking to two friends. You know, I kept interjecting, but no one, uh, no one paid heed of me. <laughs> All right. Well, that that's the goal. That's the goal. And uh, uh, just uh, so people know, we we got our times mixed up, and we're starting this interview an hour earlier than I expected. So I did not have time to sort of jot down everybody's official titles, which I was going to do in about half an hour. So if you two could do that for me right now, let's start with Sean. What is your official title and position? Uh, I'm, I'm currently a senior research fellow at the National Institute for Newman Studies, um, which is based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. But I live in Baton Rouge, Louisiana with my wife, Anne-Marie. Um, it's unseasonably, um, cold today. It's like 65 Fahrenheit. So oh, I uh, hate you. I hate you. <laughs> it's freaking out. And please plug your, uh, please, 
Please plug your last book, which is what we, you and I were talking about. Uh, right. Yeah. We were talking, uh, Larry and I, uh, the first time we we spoke, we we're talking about my monograph, um, that, uh, the Senate of Pistoia and Vatican II, um, which, yeah. which Stephen read in a, in a COVID fever. Uh, and- yeah, it was like, <laughs> uh, no, I was like, honestly, this was like proper early old school COVID, like, you know, yeah, paramedics right. coming COVID before vaccines. Oh, and the decided, Delta, you had the Delta variant. Then. I decided yes. that, you know, if it, no, this was, this was like alpha. I mean, this was like, this was early. <laughs> this was like a few weeks in. And I decided that, you know, if I was going to go out, I was going to go out on a high. So I was going to read Sean Bloodshaw's book. No, he was like, making, you know. Because you can like, never you know, know. Better, better to burn out than to fade away, you know. Because uh, as you uh, as you potentially approach your great creator maker, you, yeah. you can't possibly know enough about the Council of Pistoia, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> to get ready for that. But yeah. it is a great book, which is why I had you on. All yeah. right, and then uh, Stephen, Wait. your official your official title. Uh, I am professor of theology and the sociology of religion at St Mary's University in London, and also a professorial research fellow in theology and sociology at the University of Notre Dame in Sydney, Australia, the proper Ooh. Notre Dame. That's right. Stephen, I, you, uh, Sean, you wanted to add something? Yeah, I need, well, I was going to add that Stephen, in his COVID fever, was making memes about Cipione de Ricci based on um, oh. movies, <laughs> movies like Mean Girls. So it was, it was I was loving his... Uh, his oh, that's his right. Uh, but right. I'm also um, taking up a position at, at at the same university as Stephen, so uh, University of Notre Dame. But I'll, I'll be at the the Fremantle campus in Western Australia. So as of uh, July, that will be yes. I, I I saw that. I read that somewhere. We will be colleagues, uh, Stephen. Yeah, yeah. I now That'd have so great. many friends. On, I now have so many friends in Australia. I ne- I guess I need to go down under whatever and, and see people. You know, Philippa Martyr, Tom Gourlay. Gourlay yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, yeah right. Tracy Rowland's yeah. at Notre Dame Tra- as well. Tracy Rowland. Yeah, I have a lot of friends down there. So now I need to head down there. And, and yet another friend will be down there. Yeah, but anyway, my, let's. Uh, uh, and I, my apologies for being underprepared here. Usually I have like credentials written down, titles, names of books and so forth. And I was just doing all of that when I got the message that oh, Stephen was signing into Zoom and I thought, oh, no. Uh, but anyway, here we go. We're going to be talking about a lot today about Vatican II. So I, I don't uh, I don't necessarily want to address one of you in particular. So whichever one of you wants to respond to sort of my first uh, question here, just feel free to jump in. You can sort of agree amongst yourselves as to who's going to go first. The first thing that I want to ask you guys is why was the council called in the first place? Uh, it's often said that the council addressed no crisis, uh, unlike every other council in the history of the church, which was called to address a crisis of some kind. There was no crisis, apparently, that the council was addressing. So why was it called? And that's what ended up causing it to be such a vague and nebulous failure, so we're told, right? So uh, why was the council actually called? What's the real answer to that question? Because there was a crisis. Um, Yes. Basically, uh, you know, you don't bother calling a council if there isn't one. Um, It's a different kind of crisis. And it is almost that there's a kind of a... um, Various things in various areas, and, and you know, Sean might talk about some of the some of the stuff he writes in in the chapters about you know sort of modernism and the reaction to modernism, kind of unfinished business and and things around modernity and things. But but 
some of the stuff that I'm very interested in is there's this real sense of a, a pastoral crisis in uh, northern, western, southern Europe. So, you know, all those great all those great council fathers and, and you know, bishops and, and the popes who were so critical, people like Rana, people like de Lubac, people like Kungar, people like Ratzinger, people like Kung, people like Danielu, people like Ron Kelly, people like Montini. In the 30s, 40s, 50s, we, you know, we can cite passages after passage after passage where these are seriously concerned that we're losing the young people, we're losing the working classes. You know, Rana in the mid 50s is talking about, you know, the Christian, you know, it lives in a diaspora situation in the heart of his, his own families. 1958, um, his article yeah. in Hochschild, you know, the new yeah. heathenism in the church. And yeah, it, will also right. it will also include literary figures like Bernanos, who already in 1936, right, opening page of Diary of a Country Priest, you know, the priest says, my parish is bored, bored stiff, like all the rest of them. And there's not a damn thing we can do about it in so many yeah. words. In the 30s and 40s, the French church has been described as mission territory. Um, you know, yeah. this is where Roncalli is, is the, the nuncio. The example um, I always give is that, 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 you know, two French priests write a book in 1943, uh, La France, is France uh, missionary territory, which is a kind of unthinkable, when you look at the 19th century revival of Catholicism, especially in France, and the amount of missionaries that they're sending out to every corner of the world, it's, it's sort of unthinkable that you would have to ask in the 40s, which are which were the, the the glory years, according to, you know, American, good, good religious Americans, the 40s, 50s, or, you know, the glory years of church attendance. But in parts of Spain, in parts of France, uh, it's it's catastrophically low practice of the faith. Well, except that, I mean, you look back at what was considered low practice then. Yes. But no, absolutely. Uh, I mean, there's, uh, a, there's a real sense that, I mean, and this is straight after, you know, straight the devastation of a Second World War after, you know, just the lit, the literal ruins of, if you like, civilization. Um, you know, there's this real sense of 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 pastoral um, intellectual moral crisis. Um, and that's certainly part of uh, the kind of the the impetus for a council. And there's other things, too. But yeah, it's not that, you know, the, the, you know, it's not like with Nice you say, well, there's this kind of Aryan crisis and then you get a council to address that. It's a much more kind of wide ranging, multifaceted sense that we need to reform things or, you know, we see the way things are heading. Um, and actually, you know, it may be that, you know, the way things were heading um, actually, you know, uh, there's a debate about how well it managed to address all the kind of laundry list of things it was hoping to address. But that's all that's yeah. ecumenical councils for you. I mean, you know, they very rarely set out and achieve all that they hope to do. Um, but we might yeah. talk about that later, you know. But um, but yeah, no, I mean, there's the. It, you, you can actually go all the way back to the 1830s and find sermons from uh, John Henry Newman that were already saying modernity is characterized by deep disbelief. Modernity represents a complete sea change in the mentality of modern people, that it that it is a completely different consciousness. Now, this is in the 1830s already. You see a high churchman 
writing about how there is an altogether there there is a there's a dechristianization that is in effect even if it hasn't shown up in the outward metrics of church attendance there is in fact a dechristianization going on I'm, I, I've been struck recently by the that there are many, many differences between Vatican I and Vatican II in, in all sorts of ways, but there are some continuities. And, I, and yeah. I do think one of the continuities is that the reason for calling the council, both councils, is sort of amorphous. It's a sort of a set of isms that are seen as problems by first and foremost the Pope and then advisors, theologians, various people um, around the Catholic world. Trent is very, it's very clear why Trent is called. It's very clear why Constance is called. But Vatican I is sort of, you know, what, what, what are the problems? Oh, deism, uh, socialism, nationalism, these are all sort of amorphous problems. It's not called in order. Rationalism. Uh, rationalism. At least explicitly, it's not saying, oh, well, we have this, this church splitting disagreement over the Immaculate Conception or papal infallibility. That's not why it's called. It's called because of this general sense that the church is in a problematic position. And I don't think that's that dissimilar from Vatican II. And that's not really pointed out very often by the people making the kinds of claims that you led this question with, Larry. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point, one that I've never actually thought deeply about. But I think when you, now that you mention it, I think that's absolutely true. It also point there's something strange about Vatican I and Vatican II as well, it seems to me, and you guys can, and then we'll move on back to the original question, but it seems to me that there is a, an extremely close collaboration between the Pope and the Council Fathers. I mean, you, you guys point out in the book, and I think it's true, historically, there's always a bit of a tension between Popes and the councils that get called. Uh, be, it really kind of turf wars over who's got more, you know, it goes back to the days of conciliarism and Pope's not quite trusting councils and so on. So it does seem as if there is in Vatican one and two, this coming together of papal authority and conciliar authority in a sort of united front against this perceived problem. Am I, am I wrong about that? Sean? I mean, Sean's the real. Yeah. Sean, Sean goes back further than I do. Put it that way. So, I, I think that the situation fundamentally changes when uh, you have this kind of ironic or or maybe paradoxical situation where a council destroys conciliarism, at, which is what happens at Vatican One. You know, you have this sort of irony. It's almost like a pope renouncing ultramontanism which i mean you sort of get in a certain way with john the 23rd you know he says well i'm only infallible under these circumstances i'm never going to do that you know so it's a sort of like yeah, yeah. demilitarization de of a certain ecclesial space so i think you get that with a council at vatican one where the papacy sees the the potential the the ecumenical council becomes a tool of the papacy in a way that Trent, while it was going, later on it becomes a Roman, um, uh, I don't want to say weapon because that sounds, you know, aggressive, but it becomes a sort of tool in the toolbox for Roman centralization, whereas I don't think it was that during when it was going on. Right, the right. The situation profoundly changes with Vatican I. Pius Twelfth, in fact, was considering calling an ecumenical council. There were people yes. close to him. He was very seriously entertaining this idea. And I think that 
the reason we now have this, again, sort of paradoxical situation of a kind of uh, liberal ultramontanism under under Pope Francis, which is what Bill Podier uh, calls it, where you have a sort of Roman-led synodality, you know, a sort of yeah. Roman-led decentralization yeah. is sort of unthinkable apart from the what really what Vatican I did in in my in my opinion. Now that's so a great point. With all sorts of layers of like paradoxes, and I think in five hundred years people will look back on this as kind of its own uh, epoch, very separate. Well, from to, yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad you gave a shout out to my dear friend, Bill Portier. I love Bill. He's a great he guy. You, he mentioned you the last time I saw him very, uh, very fondly. Well, yeah, he and I go way back. I've known Bill for a long time. He's a bright guy. But also, I mean, it, in defense of the seeming incongruity of the use of papal authority to push synodality, could it not also be said, and we'll get back to Vatican II here in a second, could it not also be said that in a church with a hyper-centralized governing apparatus, centralized in Rome, that in order for it to become decentralized, you almost have to have that central authority divest itself. So in other words, it almost has to be a papally driven action to undercut papal centralism uh, from above. That would be, you know. There's um, no other institutional mechanism that has any juridical power to do that. Right. Now, I'm suspicious of synodality. I'm not a big fan of it, uh, but that's a whole different topic for a different show. Uh, I want to get back, though, to the to the issue of uh, the crisis that Vatican II was addressing. Uh, and in some ways, this discussion about the coming together of papal and conciliar authority is, is related to that, because um, there was a specific maybe theological crisis that arose in the late 19th century, early 20th century, to which the council might be responding, so to speak, that goes by this loose, vague designation, modernism. I mean, and Pius XII issued the syllabus of errors against it. Then, of course, they, they issued the oath against modernism that everybody had to take, you know, ich werde bei Gott und, you know, the church's doctrines. And so I hate to make that sort of Nazi sort of illusion. But but there there was a kind of sort of goose step information quality to these various oaths that you had to take, even if you did not sort of subscribe to them, you better darn well take the oath. So in other words, my point was there was a very sort of authoritarian top down sort of attempt to suppress modernism as a theological. So my question first off to you guys would be, because you raised the issue, issue in your book, and I agree, it, was there really a thing a real thing that we can identify as, oh, that's modernism? Or is it just a sort of vague term used to designate a group of theologies that the papacy was simply uncomfortable with? Steve, Steve, we disagree yeah, on Steve, this, don't we? Stephen's an expert. He's a big uh, Mary Delval fan. That's his favorite. Yeah. Stephen's okay. favorite, favorite English Catholic of all time. <laughs> Cardinal. Cardinal Raphael <laughs> Mary Delval. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, what do you, well, Stephen, you go first. Well, so, yeah. I mean, you often, I mean, and my perspective on this is is based on a, I did a particular piece of research once, uh, particularly looking at Newman and Newman's, so Newman gets dragged, you know, Newman's dead by this point, but but when Pashendi is published by, by Pius X, um, George <laughs> Tyrrell, who was one of the sort of, one of the leading modernists uh, in, in England, um, 
he first of all he he thinks that Pashendi is a fair like you often hear it said that you know Pashendi is this complete strawman argument um and and you know it, it creates this kind of spectacle called modernism that doesn't match anything that any of the actual so-called modernists believe or think um Tyrrell reads Pashendi and says it's a fair cop like he says yeah I mean he even says it could <laughs> even have been it could even have been written by a kind of a a fifth column in the Vatican, sympathetic to our views. So, wow. so sort of winsomely does it present everything that we we say, right? Wow. Um, so, so Tyrrell certainly thinks, you know, like we'd say now, he like he feels seen by Pichetti, right? <laughs> um, like, <laughs> and and but but then abs- <laughs> but then very quickly, like then. And, and it becomes this whole kind of thing in like literally in like in the letters in the letters pages of the times of, uh, you know, he then says, well, the the Pope's just condemned Cardinal Newman, our beloved Cardinal Newman, and, and proved that you can't be a good Englishman and a good Catholic because they've just slammed him and everything he stood for. And of course, everyone in the, you know, right, dear sir, I, you know, I'm horrified at this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> The smirching of a fine Englishman, um, and, and and then so that's why I was interested into it because because you know Tyrrell says look they've just condemned Newman, and and actually one of the main guys at the Vatican who was uh, the Secretary of State Cardinal Mary Delval, who is the arch anti-modernist, um, and he's the son of a Spanish diplomat born in London. Uh, you know, raised, went to college, went to seminary in, in England and, you know, dreamt in English and would, can considered himself English despite his name. Um, he loves Newman. So so he was very anxious to then kind of put it out that, no, absolutely Newman is not being condemned here. Um, so there's this kind of play that everyone cites Newman in the same way that people, everyone now cites Newman or liberals and progressives, everyone loves Newman and, and brings in their Newman to the fight. Um, so okay. certainly... Um, and I'm certainly no expert on on the wider modernisms, um, but in terms of certainly Tyrrell, it's quite clear that that whatever it is that Pius X is calling modernism in Pashendi, not only is a real thing, but is like, is, yeah, that, that's obvious. That's true. <laughs> All right. Before we get into the particulars of what it is that allegedly modernist theologians actually held and therefore how they might have in some sense led to Vatican II. Stephen, uh, I mean, Sean, do you have a response to what Stephen said? Not well, a good I, one. Uh, what's that? Not a good one. Not a good one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, did you know, the, the examples are always Tyrrell and Loasi, right? So, right. I mean, yeah, were there individuals who held um, imminent pantheism or whatever the, I, I can't remember the exact phrases of Pashendi. Sure, there were, but was there a massive conspiracy in every single diocese, you know, to undermine the Catholic faith? Well, no, I don't think there was at all. So, I mean, even Mary Delval, he he thought that the, the um, uh, uh, Umberto Benini, so, you know, close, close to the, uh, Immanuel Greece of the of the liturgy in, in 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 surname, but he thought that there were people in the Vatican who were going way 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 too far. They were either paranoid or they were settling scores. So, I think it it, it I mean it's very similar to the debate over Jansenism. I mean, 
did like you can look at Uniginitus and say, okay, well, who who holds this and in what way do they hold it? Well, Kanel does, the guy they're targeting, but do other people hold it in precisely this way? Or is this really just diverse reform currents, some of which are good and some of which are bad? And yeah. I think that's really what we have with modernism too. Yeah, the problem that's absolutely fair. Like it's just like the when you look at the syllabus of errors, you you know, you look at 80 condemnations. I mean, some of them are like are obviously contrary to the Catholic faith. It's the same thing with with Pashendi. So, but the problem is when all this gets rolled up into a hammer and it can bang someone on the head who, you know, points out that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch or something. So I think this is what the Nouvelle Theologie and later the kind of broader resource mod movement are reacting against, which is modernism becomes a kind of stick that you can beat people with who don't conform to a very, very narrow statement of the case. And I, and I actually know Stephen would agree with that. I think he just No, loved, no, I, I, I absolutely agree. Which is probably fair enough. I mean, there, there were people who went too too far and Tyrrell and Loasi, for different reasons, are, are two of those people. No I mean, anti, anti-modernism becomes the McCarthyism of the Catholic Church, you know, before Mark McCarthyism yeah. was a thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and really, it does. Um, uh, and and so there there is i mean there is a stifling and and there is you know this kind of um well i mean there's this kind of thing where you know people who 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 go on to become the sort of the great golden generation of the council are yeah. deeply suspected if not silenced um you know and then you know this is why this yeah then, this question is go ahead third himself what he he gets access to his holy office file when he becomes pope and it says suspected <laughs> modernism. So it's like, oh wow i did not know that uh, that's yeah. news to me he, pope, he, john, pope john got access to his own holy what did it say that was the only time he could get it was because he was pope and it's and someone had written in the margin suspected of modernism. <laughs> well, for every yeah, tradition, is, every every a, rad trad out there listening to this, they would say, yeah, "Well, of course he was a modernist." Yeah, of course. Yeah. Now, now that is a, a commonly relayed anecdote. So uh, I I see. Yeah, a piece just of like that, the, with Congar, yeah, he allegedly yeah. says the reform of the church is such a thing possible. I've seen that cited, and I can't get the kind of er citation of that so we take it with a grain well of it's like in my field uh you know dorothy day there's that quote ascribed to her you know that we need to bring down this entire filthy rotten system yeah. and yet you try to hunt that quote down and it's impossible to find now she probably said variations of that in different venues here and because she was clearly opposed to the filthy rotten system in which we live. Uh, but whether or not she actually said that at a specific moment in exactly that way, who knows? So yeah, it's like same, those Chesterton quotes. They're never quite as pithily expressed when you yeah. actually trace them to the source. So they're kind of four paragraphs and it's been distilled. Is <laughs> distilled down, distilled down. But anyway, the, the modernist thing really interests me precisely because I do count myself, obviously, as a uh, a resource mont theologian, nouvelle theologie, communio theologian, whatever you want to call it. And so the, the relate, you know, guys like Blondel, uh, you know, and Daniel Lou and De Lubac were accused of being modernists. And in point of fact, that strikes me as odd. Uh, because in some ways, I think those guys were also in their own way reacting against modernism as as it was perceived to be. Now, the, 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 I, I know Ratzinger, for example, I don't know if it was when he was just Rose, Ratzinger was later as Pope said that, 
he made some comment about how so many of the problems that were afflicting the post-conciliar church were being caused by the fact that it was a kind of recrudescence of an old-fashioned modernism, uh, which the church tried to deal with in an authoritarian way under Pius X, uh, but which really just suppressed things. And then, of course, it came bubbling back up because it was never adequately dealt with. Uh, but then Ratzinger goes on to say, but maybe given the, the times, that was the only response of the church possible. So that's, this is what I want to sort of toss out there, which is one, I want to talk about some of the specifics of the modernist, so-called modernist heresy. And it seems to me that one of the more contentious ones, and you alluded to it, Sean, wasn't just the role of subjectivity, the role of culture and comparative religions and the role of historicity and the mediation of revelation. Those are all major themes that even the resource Mont guys eventually take up. I think one of the central things was uh, the importation of 19th century German biblical higher criticism of, of the Bible, and that the church, the Catholic church at that time, had no intellectual resources for answering those critiques. And that is perhaps one of the reasons why the answer initially from the church was simply to shut it down, you know, and it waited another 40 years or whatever until we get Divino Flante Spiritu, you know, you know, these things from Pius XII that give the sort of open the door a crack to scholarship. Do you think that's a sort of maybe accurate way of seeing as to why the, 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 the most neuralgic point that the church had with modernism was the approach to biblical or was it something else? Um, I don't know that it was necessarily the most neuralgic because I think it depended on the the anti-modernist. And so I think there were many Thomists, neo-scholastic Catholics that were primarily concerned with the with the philosophical, what they would have termed okay. philosophical modernism. But undergirding there, there was a an anxiety about what modern modes of thought in general could do to the Catholic faith and contemporary biblical criticism or 19th century biblical criticism was seen as a profoundly destabilizing current. And I agree. I don't, they didn't have the, the tools to combat it to an extent, but we, we just at the Newman Institute, we just hosted uh, Trent Poplam from Notre Dame Oh yeah, uh, I know Trent. Yeah, who knows the kind of Italian and and Roman specifically the kind of intellectual situation very very well. And he's saying, you know, there's there's never really a there are times of of there's ebbs and flows, but there's never really a time where Italians and Romans in particular aren't doing like excellent archaeological work or excellent historical work. I mean, they didn't need Germans to teach them how to do historical study. I mean, I study I've studied some 18th century you know, Ludovico Muratori, people like this, who who did a sort of at least sort of proto-historical critical study. I think it was the, the biblical component when combined with the philosophical, and eventually this just gets mushroomed into, like there's a, a the first encyclical of Pius XI, uh, Ubi Arcano, I believe it's called. I cite it in a short essay on anti-modernism at Vatican II. This encyclical, Pius XI, talks about modernism it as he says not just theological modernism i'm sorry i don't i was trying to pull up the the quote but he says something like not just the theological modernism but social and political modernism too so modernism just becomes like 
everything modern that could threaten or undercut the church. <laughs> a key element of that is is the the biblical picture, but to the extent that that's at the forefront, it probably depends upon the anti-modernist uh, in, in question, and also probably where did where did the Catholics live, right? Like Portuguese Catholics are probably not encountering you know 19th century German historical criticism. Um, they're probably encountering you know destabilizing conversations about church and state or or something like yeah, that. Yeah, you know, if you live in if you live in Cologne or Vienna, then yeah, probably the the biblical criticism is is central. Stephen, do you have anything you want to add to that? I don't or? think I have anything to add to that. Okay. No, no, no. No, okay. Well, then the, the, it seems to me that, you know, one of the things that uh, one of the consequences of a lot of the German Protestant, liberal Protestant biblical exegesis, higher criticism that was going on, was that theological conclusions were being made within the Protestant world that were that were saying that, therefore, the Bible itself yeah, you know, we can still call it the word of God, but in a in a deeply attenuated sense, meaning simply, it is a book of that is the product of the religious imagination of of you know right. ancient Jews. So it's it's sort of a mythopoesis, even if it's rooted somewhat in historical events that came from. It's in other words, essentially, it's a human generated document, uh, and God. You might be able to find some Ariadne's thread of God somehow speaking to us and all of that. But in the same way, you could do the same thing with Hindu texts, Buddhist texts, and so on. So there seemed to be a relativizing of religious experience, which the Catholic theological response was to say this undermines, therefore, the objectivity of doctrine, uh, the truth of the objectivity of doctrine, and that to me. Beyond biblical criticism, the the undermining of objective truth in doc, that doctrines enshrine not just religious sentiment and religious affectations in symbolic form, but really are propositional truth statements. Do you think that is an accurate assessment of of one of the fears of, of what modernism was up to? Definitely. Yeah, I think that's 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 exactly what they were afraid of. Um, I found I found the Pius XI quote. So this come this comes back at Vatican II of the way that modernism is understood by the minority at Vatican II. You know the the more traditionalist neo-scholastic. Right. Mind. Right. Okay. So the definition gets expanded, and you see this happening with a lot of sort of isms in church history. You know the the definition of Jansenism comes to be about things widely you know, more expansive than divine grace or, or penance or whatever. So Pius XI condemns, quote, moral, legal, and social modernism no less decidedly than we condemn theological modernism. So that, so for in the debate over Dignitatis Humanae and the debate says right. you have a lot of minority council fathers who are saying, okay, we lost on Dei Verbum, at least in the, the general map of Dei Verbum, we lost. It's too subjectivist. It's not you know, uh, Thomistic or neo-scholastic enough, but let's not lose on these other matters, relationship of church and state or the, the church's engagement with the modern world. So the fear of the minority is this broader definition of modernism, which which they would have grown up with in seminary from the the, the prelates that they looked up to and that formed them, is that this is now sort of seeping into the kind of general ethos of Vatican II. And that debate has circled around and i think we're still 
the three of us know this very well, we're still dealing with that debate. Is the general ethos of modern Catholicism too um, cozy with the modern world, too cozy with culture, yeah. with modern yeah. political, what have you? So this is really a debate that, as you say, uh, Larry, it goes back to the late 19th, early 20th century, and it's to some extent unresolved. As much as the papacy wants it to be resolved <laughs> and wants to simply say it is resolved and we're moving on. Well, and, and I'm putting the cart before the horse here, but, uh, you know, I don't want this whole discussion to be just on modernism. I want to sort of it began as a discussion of modernism to set up Vatican II. And so we're kind of here and I want to get back to resource month theology eventually. But you bring up Dignitatis Humanae and I think it's sort of a case in point. Uh, the traditionalists wanted to maintain the old thesis hypothesis uh, sort of system. Uh, it says, you know, if Catholicism isn't a minority, then the church can accept some sort of modicum of religious freedom and accommodation. But if the church is in the majority, then it should push for a kind of integralist confessional uh, sort of ensconcing of Catholicism as, as the privileged religion and whatever legal ramifications that might have. Dignitatis Humanae comes along and says, oh, we're not touching any of that. All right? the, the, the church's traditional teaching and all of that remains intact. All right. And then it goes on to say, but no, it isn't <laughs> because, you know, we have to, even if essentially what Dignitatis, it seems to me, is saying is even if we're going to have a confessional state, it has to be a confessional state that grants to everyone broad religious freedom rights, one way or the other, rooted in human dignity. Uh, and so this raises the issue. So you're right. It's, it's an unresolved and festering question. It's one of those so-called ambiguities of Vatican II that the critics are always sort of pointing to. But it does then bring me then to a question I, I want to address both of you, because, I mean, you lay out in the book basically these kinds of uh, paradigms for interpreting the council. One is the sort of traditionalist rejection of the council, period. You know, it's just, it was too ambiguous. And after all, it made no new dogmatic statements, so we're free to reject it. The second is the sort of failed council model that says, well, the council didn't go far enough, it wasn't radical enough, or it just was naive, you know, in many ways. And so we can just sort of dismiss it as a failure, just like the Council of Florence or whatever. Uh, then comes the model of spirit event, which I have recently written about in National Catholic Register. This is the famous spirit of Vatican II, where the council is a kind of spirit-filled event that established a set of processes, a set of reforming sort of movements. Uh, trans the, the documents are important, but the actual event transcends the document. The significance of the dynamic established for reform transcends the documents itself, which then later justified sort of going beyond the documents. And then like for Woodstock, like the idea of Woodstock is much bigger than, than <laughs> yeah. you know, who was and actually like, there and what now actually happened. Now there's apparently 800 million people that were at Woodstock. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so and I'm, I'm writes about, the song, the, the song about Woodstock, and wasn't there. You know, it's that kind of thing. You know? Larry, you know more about that. Stephen and I were born in the '80s, so we, <laughs> we heard, heard well, I was I was ten years old and in the state of Nebraska when Woodstock took place, and okay. I was a dyed-in-the-wool right-wing reactionary nut job from hell. So there was, uh, I, I was dead set against all that hippie crap and all that stuff. So, uh, would, from Muskogee. That yeah, it, it did oh, not no, appeal no, to no, me. Did, I was a little intellectual nerd interested in astronomy and evolution and science and stuff like that. I didn't give a rat's fig for 
any of that stuff. But anyway, the fourth model is text continuity, sort of where, uh, the, you know, we should pay attention to actually what the texts say, especially, in, and to read them as Pope Benedict said, in light of the entirety of the tradition and attempting some kind of continuity. So those are the four models. Now, um, we've kind of sort of established that, and I'm talking too much, I know, but we've established that the council was addressing a crisis, sort of the crisis of modern unbelief, de-Christianization, secularization, uh, the rot that was in the church that people could feel, and to a certain extent, the theological earthquake being caused by various intellectual currents uh, that Catholic theologians had taken up. Now, in the light of those, those sort of sort of four models there, what what emerged really at Vatican II? Uh, in this in this context, we need to maybe discuss then resource mon theology and its relationship to the modernists, and and why many, including myself, and I think you guys would say that the resource mon theologians sort of won the day at the council. So what what does that mean with regard to these four models? I'll just toss that out there to you guys. Stephen, you want to go first on that? Uh, well. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that first of all, um, you know, when we talk about these sort of four paradigms, it's, it's really about where the authority lies. OK, so of course, of course, the council was an event. Of course, it was huge. And, you know, I, I'm, you know, half the time, well, actually, I'm, you know, I'm a theologian and a, and a sociologist and a lot of the way, you know, which which conditions both of the things that I do, um, you know, I, either one. Um, and, and obviously you know the the way in which the council is is perceived affects how it gets interpreted okay? um, but theologically kind of dogmatically um you know these these kind of paradigms are really about the the authority of the council and 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 where we looked if we do look to the council as having authority and of course those first two you mentioned a kind of um you know anti-accounts in that sense as you know the yeah, council yeah. doesn't have authority and the other two is like well this is where we look within the council to where the authority lies um and and obviously the, the i mean the methodology of the council is something that we need to to kind of really flag and something that's very innovative um the, the yes. council documents are really long for a start and and there's that whole thing that we talk about in the book but you know um you know, John O'Malley, who gets quoted, probably quoted the most in the book of anyone that isn't a document. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, well, he had a great book on the topic. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's this new genre of teaching that, that Council Vatican II does. In the same way that like encyclicals start getting much longer as well. You know, like you look at, you know, you always hear like Leo Thirteenth wrote 13 encyclicals on the rosary. And it's like, yeah, well, some of them are like, you know, a paragraph called yeah. an encyclical and he's like writing to the american bishops to say hey guys remember to pray your rosaries um, <laughs> and veritate splendor goes on to like book length yeah exactly so we we, we you know there's there's a kind of a whole change in genre a change of 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 the way in which councils do theology and argue for their kind of positions you know we've gone from a very kind of canon law if you like you know propositions and and responses and you know things things you're not allowed to say things like that um and 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 at least part of that is coming out of this you know very much more scripturally uh 
enriched way of the council speaking. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously a lot of it also coming out of this kind of resource and one of like, well, let's go back to, to the, to the sources. Let's go back to the church fathers. Um, and, and of course, anyone, the, the difficulty with going back to the, the fathers is that anyone can do it, you know, like, and, 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 and the fathers are polyphonic. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah. so it's, 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 it, it's a very different way of doing things. And, you know, going back to, uh, you know, the canons of, 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 of Trent or something to, to kind of, you know, this kind of almost, um, uh, you know, algebraic way of doing theology, if, if that kind of makes sense. Um, so, yeah, so that yeah. becomes important, I think. Um, and also there's just a whole new, which you get in Newman, you know, we talk about Newman a lot here. Um, you know, this is precisely what Newman does as well. You know, he goes back to the father. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is this, and I will get to Sean. I, I saw you taking notes. I know you want to say something, but, uh, I, but while this is still fresh in my mind, it's one of the notes I jotted down pre-show, which is, it has always seemed to me that one of the reasons why this genre that Vatican II represents is, is documents engaged in long theological discourse is, is, is because in, in reaction to or in response to modern unbelief, I think one of the things that the Council Fathers had in mind, and, and along with Pope John and then Pope Paul, was that what was needed was the reinterrogation of everything. <laughs> there, there, I think there's a sense in which the council was about everything. <laughs> and, and that it, we, we need to rethink church doctrine, not in a revolutionary way, but in a radical way, going back to the roots and to sort of, let's rethink it from the ground up, which requires all of these longer documents that in that build off a Thomistic foundation, but then add in more scripture and church fathers and and flesh it out a lot more. Uh, you know, so that that's always sort of been my side. So you know, I, I do I do like what you had to say there about the longer genre. And I think that's why, personally. No, I think that's right. I mean, the council, you know, has to, when it when it 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 talks about the nature of the church, it wants to tell you why it this is the nature of the church right? yeah, and yeah. so it has to go back to the scriptures it has to go you know yeah. and, it, and it, it kind of tells us the story you know yeah so uh, sean go ahead i was going to say that it i think first and foremost it is the race response style so that is a kind of discontinuity with the immediate past but in hopefully in a deeper continuity as ratzinger would put it with the yeah. you know, the, the scripture and the fathers but there, are, there is continuity with the recent past, as you both alluded to, because you have this sort of explosion of the encyclical and what the encyclical is supposed to do. What, it, what kinds of questions is the Pope supposed to be commenting about? So if the second, if there are two uh, loci of supreme authority in the church, the Pope and then the, the bishops uh, as a college headed by the Pope, then I think the logic is, well, if the Pope's talking about economics and warfare and gender and marriage, then well, we should be as well. Cause that's what Catholic, that's what good Catholic teachers do. I mean, and, and you, you know, you have the Leo encyclicals and then the immediate predecessor is Pius XII. And there's, you know, this anecdote about people walking into his rooms late at night, the, the housekeepers to tell him to go to bed and he's got all these books you know, uh, laying all over the place and they go, Holy Father, what, what are you doing, you know, late at night studying? And he says, oh, well, I'm, I'm giving a, a speech to the beekeepers, 
association soon you know it's just, <laughs> it's just ludicrous that's a really good speech as well though i've actually seen that exact speech i don't yeah, know yeah, yeah. the one pulled up as a but you know and he gives this uh address to the italian midwives he gives addresses to lawyers and then john courtney murray quotes that about developing thought about religious liberty so there's this there's this this sort of global catholic intellectual culture that needs to base its desires for development or for uh, theological innovation on authority, whether it's papal or whether it's conciliar. And I think so. I think there's a kind of supply and demand thing going on, which is threatening to reach absurdity when you have, uh, you know, Francis's um, uh, Fratelli or not Fratelli Tutti. What was the one? The one on the environment. Laudato um, Si. I mean, Laudato see a, a lot of these are just enormous. I mean, they're they're you know yeah. novella length, and uh, and and so so we are, you know, there's pros and cons to all these styles. But Vatican II should be seen, I think, as part of this wider phenomena phenomenon of how Catholic teaching works in modernity. And this is just pushing back against, you know, how we started the conversation. There's always this sense of, well, Vatican II is unprecedented. No, no, nothing else works this way. This is never the way it's been. That's really, it's it's really part of a, like I say in my book on Pistoia, it's a point in an arc of reform, stretching back with the issues I was discussing in that book, stretching back to the 18th century. But as far as how the papacy works, how public Catholic teaching works, I think it's a starting in the late 19th century story as you as you begin yeah that's i think that's uh a, a brilliant insight because i think it's true we have to take into account also changes in technology where and yeah. and, edu and levels of education where now you've got millions and millions and millions of catholics all over the world who are now educated and literate and want access to documents and things to read uh and so the church is obliged but also i think Something that often does not get mentioned is at play here. It coincides as well with the demise of the papal states and with the rise of the papacy as a purely spiritual and theological authority, no longer in any way, shape or form a political authority, except by sort of the moral authority that the church exerts in, in political matters. Uh, and so as, as the papacy takes on this role more and more and more, simply a teacher in chief of the whole world, all right, it, it, it starts producing, you know, more and more of these. That's my little pet theory anyway. No, it's interesting. You look at someone like the Dalai Lama, who, you know, has no political authority in Tibet anymore. And, and I don't think anyone looked to him as a world leader when he did. But without yeah. that, then becomes another kind of world spiritual leader kind of thing. And That's it's that right. kind of role that it frees the papacy to 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 rise above petty politics and to kind of fly to the UN, which, of course, Paul VI famously does. And right. you know, shout at yeah. them and then fly back like in the same day or whatever he does. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, the papacy is no longer the, you know, the, the, the grand potentate of a series of geographic states. It is, it's, you know, the papacy is now the, the Oracle of Delphi in Rome. And, and so and you get these inflated documents. But anyway, that um, does you guys have any more that you want to say about about that issue about because um, that, you know, the issue to me is near and dear to my heart about the relationship between resource mont and modernism, because the. Uh, as you well know, there's this resurgence of a kind of tradism in the church today, 
uh, a very simplistic rejection of the council. It's your first paradigm here. Sort of the council uh, represents a rupture with the past and therefore if, because it didn't introduce any new dogmas, we're just free to reject it. And also, as a consequence of that, we are free to re reject the so-called new theology, new theology, because they're all just modernists. I've seen this over and over again. The resource month guys are just modernists by a different name. I'm not certain that people that level that accusation ever really know what modernism was historically. Uh, but giving them the benefit of the doubt that maybe they do, I don't know. But maybe you guys could comment uh, uh, about that. For example, in your opinion, was Blondell a crypto modernist? Uh, it was, was, you know, was someone like a Chenu, especially, or even a Congar? Uh, were they sort of so enmeshed in this idea of revelation being mediated through historical structure? Uh, and, and and subjectivity were they were they crypto modernists? Obviously, I don't think so. But I'd like your thoughts on that. No, I, th I think the difficulty is, and and we the, the trouble with the modernists is that a lot of what they said was right, and 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 this happens all the time in church right. history, of course. Um, and you know, one of you know, there's a whole literature around how, um, you know, we, you know, the heresies raise good points. You know, like the classic church heresies, you know, in the early church raise oh. important points that need solving and have a partial solution. And then, you know, the wisdom of the magisterium, you know, kind of brings together the good bits and, and synthesizes it into a whole. And, you know, the classic thing is, you know, at, at Chalcedon, you know, there's two groups, neither of which have got the whole story. And then you put them together in Leo's tome and you get kind of Chalcedonian Christology. And then there's a sense in which that's true with modernism and the sense in which that's true with Trent and Protestantism and things like this, um, in, in, in the sense that obviously what the modernists are reacting to and at least some of what they are proposing on the back of these very big changes in 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 the world and in society and and then kind of the foundation you know especially the kind of scriptural studies um you know as it turns, you know, much of what they say, you know, Vatican II ends up saying, yeah, they were right about that. But that that isn't to say that Vatican II then is a modernist council, because it it still rejects all the other all the dross. But, and, and there's a bit, yeah, bit like, yeah. you know, it's a bit like that, you know, the wheat and the chaff is that, you know, you eventually get over time and it takes the church a while. But, you know, over time, the, the, the church is able to sort out the wheat from the chaff. Um, so you are always going to find things in Congo and Dulubak and, 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 and any one of that generation who's worth talking about, including Garigou Lagrange and people, you know, who. Yeah, uh, who, with that, I could not agree more. I think that's fantastic. certainly, you know, far more nuanced than the kind of, you know, the people who want to say that these are staunch anti-modernists uh, seeing them, but also far more of great value and tradition than the people who want to say that. You know, no one says Garigou Lagrange, but certainly people like Rana, Ratzinger, Congar, well, early Ratzinger people do. But I, I mean, I always have a hermeneutic of continuity with Ratzinger that I don't think that Ratzinger changes. I think the centre ground changes. Um, oh, and, and, another and, point with which I am in deep agreement. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and it's it's not that something happens in the late 60s and Ratzinger suddenly goes conservative. It's that something happens in the late 60s and everything else suddenly goes to the left. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's not to say that his thought doesn't develop and, you know, to live is to change, but um, there's a deep continuity. And even someone like, I mean, you know, 
this is you know my hill to die on is that rana is a far more deeply traditional uh you know classic dogmatic theologian than than often his best supporters give him credit for um also far more scholastic than say yeah, this is a, a guy who edited denzinger and if you read it yeah. actually read him he's quoting chapter and verse of denzinger in a way that you know theologians now don't i think they don't, though the, they don't the criticism the criticism of rana though would be is that his transcendental analysis leads to a theology of nature and grace that has some hidden time bombs in it that later come yeah, out maybe and uh that Rahner himself followed through on some of, of some of the late Rahner. I some don't know how them. much yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, yeah I don't know sure. how much is true I'm not a huge Rahner fan but or I, scholar. Think, I think my point is that the, the difficulty comes is that they win then reject all Rahner and anything Rahner ever said exactly exactly anonymous and, Christians is a case in point which is always cited as proof of Rahner's great heresy and if you but if you look in the 1960s every major theologian including Ratzinger including von Balthasar including Dubak, yes. is saying something more or less exact this is the great his balthazar's polemical book in 1968 or now you know you know he has that end that that the highly polemical criticism of Rahner at the very end where he's criticizing the notion of anonymous christianity and yet and yet balthazar himself plays in that sandbox frequently Frequently. Balthazar himself in Cordula says, of course, I'm not denying the fact that there are people well, who have an And then later on in Was Dürfen, in Was Dürfen wir hoffen, you know, dare we hope that all be yeah. saved. He's saying, well, we can hope everybody's saved, which implies that there's a, an anonymous movement of grace in everyone, everywhere, that we can hope is operative in some sort of sanctifying way. Exactly. Uh, so and you're Kongo, right. Uh, we have to put these... And Ratzinger all think that non-Christians can be saved through Christ. They just don't think you can call them Christians because baptism is a public thing, as it were. You know, that, yeah, that's, yeah, that's exactly. the thing, and but it's not to say. So there's, there's, yeah. So the point being, yeah, that even someone like Rahner needs to be taken seriously uh, in his context and not just to be summarily dismissed, which is what so many uh, modern modern people do sean do, do you have anything oh, well, I, was, I, I was laughing also because this whole idea of did did the individual change or did everyone else or you know and i'm 36 and i'm always, i'll be like called out by friends about like a seeming inconsistency and i'll be like i'm aware of of, of, of my radical conversions on, on on major points you know I, I can imagine what uh what ratzinger felt like in his 80s where people have you know five yeah. decades of public you know utterances to evaluate by someone of that stature but anyway i have if you want four more paradigms from me sure on modernism so i get and i'll be very brief but i gave this essay at the at the newman institute conference the one that podier uh, spoke at also Chuck Taylor, you know, uh, Ch Father uh, Charles right. Taylor, yeah, uh, yeah, excellent modernism scholar, and then um, Klaus Schatz from uh, do not know him, uh, the University of Mainz, uh, who's who's excellent. Um, excuse me, Klaus Arnold. I was I just said the Vatican, the author of the, the Vatican Munum book, but Klaus Arnold is a great scholar who has uh, cited you, Stephen, and and did he did work. All the great scholars do, Sean. <laughs> yeah. That's how you know. That's like the, that's like yeah. the he did, he did some in great scholarship. That's he the did, tell. 
Was it contra Bullivant? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said contra Bullivant's absurd smear campaign against Tyrrell. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, but he recently went into the CDF archives or the, the artist formerly known as the CDF and was looking precisely at this question of, of when the com- committee, for lack of a better word, I can't remember the term, uh, was debating how Pashendi would work and how modern, you know, how they would condemn modernism when they evoke Newman, who does it and why. And it's really, no, it's, it's, I'd love to see yeah. that. I didn't know that. I mean, he cited you because he said, you know, this is something that that people are are talking about, and they they know the context of the debate in England. But what about the debate behind closed doors in Rome? And that was an, an anxiety. Was, and I, I believe Pius X himself said, "I don't want this to be a condemnation of Newman." Yeah, yeah, to, yeah. I have to go back into Klaus. Wow. Arnold. But anyway, Klaus Arnold is publishing this work in our journal, the Newman Studies Journal. It's excellent. Anyway, my four paradigms on modernism, the reception of modernism very much map onto these four paradigms that Stephen and I have in the book. But the first paradigm is modernists are among us. So this is the kind of traditionalist paradigm. So, you know, a lot of the confusion in the church is just modernism. So you'd get this from infiltration. Right, exactly. So you'd get it, of course, from SSPX. You'd get it from someone like Burke would just very bluntly call out an opposing idea as modernist, uh, and really a lot of popular Catholic apologetics, even by people who aren't affiliated with traditionalist groups. And I think one reason for that, so someone like Bishop Barron, who's who's really a sort of resource mont conservative. He's oh, a, very much so, yeah. A pro-Vatican II, um, post-conciliar, you know, von Balthasar, but conservative, certainly. Certainly. A lot of these people on the internet. That's not what the trads say. I've read a lot of things on Twitter about that, you know. A lot of these folks, and I don't mean the well-informed trads that would have a whole set of reasons for why they don't like them. I mean, you're just run-of-the-mill American Catholic who sees on YouTube, can you believe Shakur, the word on fire guy, he thinks it's possible that all people will be saved. Well, the problem is they don't, and you know, Larry knows this better than me, but they don't have the context of where is the Catholic theological conversation at. Right, right. So they think, oh, well, good, a good conservative Catholic like Benedict XVI would never in a million years entertain such a crazy, that's what the crazy liberal priest says at the mass that I don't And like. yet Benedict does in space Salvi. Exactly. <laughs> so so the, 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 whole, the whole problem, and this is a problem I think is brought to the surface by modern technology, because in the past, People may have had all kinds of misconceptions about what the church teaches or doesn't teach, or they certainly wouldn't have known what are theologians in Salamanca arguing about. Are they arguing about, you know, implicit faith of an Aztec who rejects, you know, the the idolatrous religion or whatever? I mean, they, normal people probably didn't know anything about that. But now all you have to do is log on to the Internet and an algorithm puts, you know, Taylor Marshall or Church Militant or whatever onto your your screen and all of a sudden you know you're denouncing bishop baron as a heretic when you don't know the context but anyway paradigm yeah. two modernism was defeated uh paradigm three modernism was a scapegoat <laughs> so moving into a kind of you know this was a, a basically good impulse that was then scapegoated and then paradigm four the modernists were prophets okay so someone um would map onto something like uh, maybe Hans Kuhn or something like that. So the, the church was persecuting the kind of righteous prophet. Now, the academy, of course, Catholic theologians, 
you would get a lot of paradigm three and four of the way that people would look back at modernism. But those are the four, in my opinion, this is undeveloped and I'm going to work more with it, but those are the four basic ways that at Vatican II and after Catholics. That's have- interesting. I mean, I would place myself in my reaction to what I view as modernism in your paradigm number four, the, the modernists were prophets. So long as I could add the qualifier, they were flawed prophets. Sure, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. The, the modernists were you know, just like the Vatican II paradigms. There's a lot of right. Sort of- Right. Uh, overflow. Because going back to what Stephen said before, I mean, the modernists got a lot of things right. Okay. Yeah. And that, and that's what accounts for their sort of perduring, uh, perduring value. Did, did Stephen freeze on it? No, you're there. You're there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what accounts for our, their, for, for the perduring weight in gravitas of the ideas that they express. So anyway, I like your four paradigms. What say ye, Stephen? The four, but yeah, no, I, you know, this was one of the Sean chapters, so I just let him do his own, you know. <laughs> it, it was, it was, it was nice for him not to be talking about Jansenism for a change. Yeah, in that chapter, me, I thought so. Give me know. another ism. Give me another ism. <laughs> we, what we need to do is a historical critical analysis of your new book to to sort of <laughs> delim who wrote what at all because I have co-written things with people yeah. before, and. Uh, you can sort of like with Rodney Hauser, and so you can sort of say, okay, that's a Hauserism, that's a Chapism, yeah, yeah. you know. So ask. you can do a whole JEDP sort of. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I would tell sometimes I would say like, all right, this chapter needs to be bulletinized in a certain way because Stephen is is endlessly. I mean, he's absolutely filled to the brim with anecdotes. He just always has some sort of an- like about the liturgical reform he'll have like some wild anecdote like catholics in different parts of india rioted over what was the vernacular which is the most you know normally when you talk about the vernacular in vatican ii you say okay it went really well in most places but there were these like weird experiments in other places and then i just wrote down bullabentized because that's now that's going to become a standard term in my blogging you know yeah yeah (laughs) You're uh you're you're muted, Stephen. Yeah, I think you're. Are you muted, Stephen? Or we or did or did we just lose your sound? Uh oh. See, this was my fear. I warned these guys beforehand. Uh, did did uh, I don't know. It's not muted on my end. Let me let me mute and unmute. Oh, he's going to come back in. I think. Oh, okay. He's going. He 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 got it. So in the meantime, let let's carry on this conversation about the the four. Uh, the four responses to modernism are, are very reflective of also those four responses yeah. to, to Vatican II. Uh, we've been on now for almost uh, like an hour and 15, but I want to. I didn't realize it's, it. Time flies with you, Larry. Well, I, <laughs> it's because I talk so much, but I do <laughs> want to get down to a question. And hopefully when Stephen comes back, he can contribute to. Oh, there he is. I think he's coming back. And here we go. No, he's still muted. Yeah, you can swear. You can swear. <laughs> you can swear all you want. Okay. On my end, it says you're still. Can you hear me? Like if I talk. Oh about... yes, we can hear you now. Is it sufficient quality? Oh, it's it's just it's better than before, actually. Oh, there we go. Perfect. Good. No, there. Only your picture. To me now, your picture is at the bottom of my screen, and Steve uh, and Sean has shifted to the top. But anyway, before uh, 
I want to I want to get down because I'm sure a lot of the listeners are saying, OK, this book's about Vatican II and you guys are talking about 19th century, blah, 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 and modernism and paradigms and blah, blah. brass tacks here. I'm going to ask two questions. The first one would be, why should we care about Vatican II anymore? What, what was, in fact, what, what did the council actually contribute theologically and pastorally otherwise? And why, why should it still be an ongoing concern? And then the second question is going to be, after we answer that, in, in the development of its ideas, the council obviously engaged in certain discontinuities with the past. And I, and I want to talk about those discontinuities and what they portend with regard to our concept of, of authority of infallibility and, and those kinds of things. But so let's go to the first question. What is of enduring significance in this council? Well, I mean, it, it's quite early to see what, what endures, um, but certainly if anything is, you know, why is the council relevant to us today, given that we're, I mean, what, 60 years six, later? 60 I mean, years, is, 60 years. Well, that's nothing, is it? I mean, 60 years later is nothing. You know, 60 years after Nicaea, there was still like, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, exiling each other and, and whatever, you know, 60 years after Trent, there were still some Protestants around, you know, like 60 years is nothing, right? Well, one so, could say, too, that the fallout of Nicaea requiring several more councils lasted three, four, five hundred years. Well, this is one of the things I, we talk about in the book is that, you know, councils very rarely um, succeed on the terms they set out for themselves. It's not to say they don't succeed, but, you know, Nicaea certainly doesn't solve the Aryan controversy. Um, Trent, you, you look at what Trent was like set out to do. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it didn't stop Protestantism, did it? No, you know, it did um, not. No, you know, obviously, Council of Florence didn't, you know, solve the East West Schism. Um, and you know, Vatican II so far hasn't addressed all the problems that you know, modernity and secularity and dechristianization have thrown up. Um, yeah, so. You know, there, there's a sense in which the the problems that gave rise to the council, at least some of them, haven't gone away. Right. And also, you know, we're still arguing about, you know, we're still talking about, you know, all, all the, you know, paradigms yeah. that we've talked about. You know, these are not just scholarly paradigms. You know, these are, in a sense, things that, you know, are, are, are playing out on Twitter or playing out in you know, grad seminars in playing out in, you know, in, in congregations sure. and, and, you know, that, so the, the reception of the council um, is still very much with us. Um, I agree. And also, you know, the council does change a vast amount of stuff. So that, you know, you can't hope to understand the present pastorally, liturgically, you know, the nature of religious life, the, you know, the, the way in which popes and bishops interact um, you know, the nature of the curia, you know, none of this really, everything is touched by Vatican, you know, uh, ecumenical relations, interfaith relations, you know, Vatican II is a major part of the very recent backstory of all of it. Yeah, I mean, as you note in the book, Pope John specifically mentioned ecumenism as one of yeah. the most important reasons for calling the council in and the it first is, place. And it's striking that, you know, if you look at the, you know, the headlines announcing, you know, the new front page of the New York Times, ecumenism is front and center in all of the crimes. And in that things. sense, and we'll get, to Sean in a we'll get to Sean in a second, I often say that in some ways the council, the perception of the council 
is has been a victim of its own success uh, in, in the sense that it, it did change, greatly change the tone within the Catholic Church towards Protestantism, towards Judaism, towards is towards other religions in ways that we now just sort of take for granted. You know, I've had rad trads criticize the council to my face or via Facebook and say, oh, blah, 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 you know, went too far and this, that and the other thing. But then I would say to them, if you had a Jewish neighbor, what would you, you know, would you shun them now or would you support uh, persecutions against them, as you might have seen in rural Poland in 1930s or whatever? Uh, the, the, the council has fundamentally altered the, the way Catholics approach such things. In that sense, it was a success. And we, we just sort of take that for granted. Or the fact that there are all these lay dudes like Taylor Marshall, and Peter Kwasniewski and guys like this running around spouting their rad tradness are totally oblivious to the fact that the only reason why they're capable of doing that is because they have degrees as laymen that they would not have gotten in the preconciliar church by any stretch of the imagination. So they're, they're a product of the success of Vatican II's sort of universal call to holiness. So I agree with everything that you've said about reception, but uh, Sean, you want to, you want to say something, obviously. I think the same thing about when I hear uh, dubious homilies from permanent deacons, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that's right Um, although thankfully uh the ones in my area are wonderful but um no mine actually yeah i've heard some really good homilies from permanent deacons actually some of the best homilies uh i've heard of of Um, but uh it is one of the things that vatican ii brought back so there's a lot of branches that people are sitting on that get sawed off if you you come too hard at Vatican II, which is quite interesting. Um, so as far as the successes, I mean, well, as Stephen says, you can't understand contemporary Catholicism without understanding Vatican II, whether you're talking about Nigeria, the Philippines, the Netherlands, Poland, you yeah. can't understand it. Um, you also, I would say the, 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 the successes of the council uh, in a, in a, in a purely kind of literal sense so without a sort of theological judgment but just in the sense what did the council do that has taken root in some way um there are certain things that the council did so successfully that it's difficult to even explain to catholics the pre-conciliar status quo yeah Um, so someone can be a, a devout mass going catholic or even a daily mass going catholic and cannot fathom the notion of um whatever the antithesis of religious liberty is. So, cause you got to be careful how exactly you phrase this, but religious coercion or uh, a confessional sure. state in which, you know, the, the other religions are, are legally penalized or suppressed or what have you. They, they can't fathom how that could be a Catholic position. Um, the whole Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi, which is often, you know, what weaponized, but um, the way that we now talk about Protestants and Jews and I say that from my context, obviously Protestants are much more significant here than the Orthodox, but I'm sure it's the Orthodox in other parts of the world. The way that we talk about non-Christians, uh, non-Catholics, the, the Stephen as a layman with, with uh, you know, very traditional sympathies, writes a book on the salvation of atheists, you know, with the degree that he gets as a lay theologian from Oxford. I mean, this is the fruit yeah. of Vatican II, whether you think it's it's wonderful, or whether you think it's the rotten, rotten fruit of Vatican II. <laughs> and and I, and that's a 
back. So, so the traditionalism that you're often in conversation with Larry is post Vatican II traditionalism and can never be anything but that. And that's just, and it, that, that's what yeah. happens with these epoch changing events, like the French revolution to be a, to be a conservative after the French revolution is to be a new thing. It's not to be the same thing as yeah. the, I would argue, too, that a lot of traditionalists that we see now in the resurgence is a result of two things. Number one, liturgical reform. I would be of the opinion that one of the one of the negative fruits of Vatican II was the botched what I consider to be a botched liturgical reform. Now, I think the liturgy needed to be reformed. I think Sacrosanctum Concilium is a wonderful document. I attend an Anglican ordinariate church, and I wish all liturgies across the world looked like the Anglican ordinariate liturgy. I think it's what the Council Fathers may have had in mind, more vernacular and all that, but still extremely traditional. Um, uh, so I, I think if we'd sort of maintain some semblance of high liturgy in a high register with a deep continuity with the old mass, I think that would have sort of defanged some of the traditionalist response. But also, I think a lot of modern rad trads are simply red-pilled by Pope Francis. Let's, let's just put it that way. These are formerly JP2 conservative Catholics of that, of that sort who have now, for whatever reason, for right or wrong, and I don't want to get into that, have become convinced that Pope Francis is sort of an arch heretic and, and all these sorts of things. And so they've been, it, their attitude now is, well, if that's the fruit of Vatican II, then to hell with it. I'm going back to the Latin mass and the syllabus of errors. And that's that. So that's my sort of historical yeah. take on what's going on over the past 10 years. Uh, Larry, can, I, can I add the, so the, an issue that Stephen and I talk about in the book, which was originally pithily phrased by John Courtney Murray, the issue under the issue was change. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then John, okay. John O'Malley picks this up. And then, you know, so that, what what happened in my opinion during the <clears throat> John Paul II and Benedict the Sixteenth, especially with Benedict the Sixteenth, or we should say Joseph Ratzinger, because it's a 1985 yeah. interview, the hermeneutic of continuity. So there's this kind of... Um, there's this kind of settling down of of potential quote unquote conservative discontent with Vatican II because you have the hermeneutic of continuity. Now the people who advocate that usually there were certain discontinuities like religious liberty that they just didn't worry about because they agreed with them or they didn't realize that it was a change yeah. or whatever it might be. What has happened with Francis, I think, is Francis is not as he's not committed to the same sort of paradigms that benedict was even though the way benedict as i argue in the book and elsewhere benedict's view of continuity was not static it was this sort of dynamic resource mont uh how many of reform that he specifically exactly. says in that famous christmas Bingo. address to the curia. exactly and so for him he and i think he's sort of clarifying <laughs> himself because in 1985 he says continuity and he says discontinuity now he is a very sophisticated theologian former vatican ii um uh Paritus. he understands what he means he understands what the lubach means but i think the way that was filtered down in popular catechesis and conservative american bishops and whoever else was using it was a far more static understanding than ratzinger had so i think when ratzinger becomes pope he clarifies it he says hermeneutical sure form which is the continuity and discontinuity on different levels what ha what what happened with francis i think is that francis is not as 
uh, concerned about the sort of niceties of that. And one reason he's a very different person, obviously very different theological perspective. He By the way, he, uh, I don't mean to interrupt, but Pope Francis, I don't know if you guys heard has been taken to the hospital. Yeah, the yeah. So um, I would ask all of my viewers and everyone knows I'm not a big Pope Francis fan, but he is our Holy father. He is a human being. And I ask everybody to please pray for him. And, well, and I, and I ask that most sincerely, but anyway, yeah. go ahead, Sean. Well, Francis is also the, when Stephen and I make this point in the book, he's the first actually truly post-conciliar pope. So he's the first pope who to, to not have attended or participated in the council in any way. And he was in fact ordained priest after the conclusion of, of the council. So his whole priestly ministry is post-Vatican II. He doesn't, the same sorts of debates, you know, Benedict is in the 05 address is has an eye on the SSPX, I believe. This is a kind of saying, if you come in, it's under these conditions. So we're offering you this sort of olive branch. He lists, he lifts the excommunications uh, shortly after this, but it, it does come with conditions. You have to accept the council in the way essentially that he lays out. Okay. Francis is just not playing the same game, not interested in the same set of problems. For him, it's a historic, it's an event from the past that has given shape to his entire priestly ministry. It isn't a sort of live battle or a live discussion. That's my. Um, okay. Take, well, take this that. is good. And I'll get to Stephen in a second, because I was just sparring with somebody online about this. This is the first time, Sean, that I might slightly disagree with you. I so, thought, I thought if you were honest that you would. <laughs> yeah. Slightly disagree with you. I mean, but after for such all, a cantankerous old man, you like agreeing with people, actually. Uh, oh, that's you actually, right. You actually I'm enjoy just, agreeing with I'm people. just a cranky old anti-papal <laughs> crank or something I was called. I was called an anti-papal crank or something or other uh, because I responded to an essay uh, that was essentially saying what you just said, that, you know, he's the first truly post-conciliar pope. And, and John Paul and Benedict were ordained before the council and therefore were still formed in their own minds in a Tridentine mindset. But, and But let me clarify, I don't that's not as important to me as what's important is they live through the council and they fight the battles of the council in the terms. Right. That that's right. what I think. is. Well, that I agree with that. I agree with. But the, 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 the impetus of this comment was essentially that that Francis represents a sort of uh, a fresh new sort of way of approaching the that in some sense Francis understands the council better than John Paul and Benedict did precisely because he became a priest after the council and because he wasn't involved in the conciliar process and he wasn't trained before the council his is a fresh point of view and a fresh mind and mm -hmm. and the, for him the council is just a historical fait accompli not to be debated and so on and yet uh, Francis is only it was well, how old was Benedict when he died? 96? Okay, so Francis is only 10 years younger than Benedict. All right, he was born in the 30s. All of his youthful formative years took place in the pre-conciliar church in Argentina, for crying out loud. And, and the fact is, he was trained basically during the council, and of course, change was in the air and all that. But, but I, I would argue not so much that he represents the sort of first truly post-conciliar pope. I think I think Pope Francis is simply representative of a different school of thought. I think I, I, I think agree with, I, I agree with that. I think he's yeah. more prone yeah. towards the, the so-called Bologna school, whether or not the Bologna school is real or not. But the school of thought that sees Vatican, I think, in other words, in your paradigm, he's in the spirit event camp. Yeah. And therefore is much more prone towards the idea, hey, it's okay if there's all these ruptures. That's okay. 
because the Holy Spirit can do a new thing. And, and I don't know, in some ways too, and I'm going to say this, and then I'll shut up and let you guys talk, especially Stephen. I think in some ways, Pope Francis is more traditional than John Paul and Benedict. I think he flows out of a Jesuit tradition uh, that, it, that goes back to the 17th century. Uh, he himself opposes casuistry, but I think his mind works in these categories of law versus mercy. Uh, that that the whole Jesuitical tradition of casuistical thinking was, you know, you, the Jesuits, okay, there's this moral law, and then now we have to come up with these casuistical ways of sort of working around that, that sort of conscience. I had this conversation with Matthew Levering on his book on conscience, where he points out that, you know, that after the 17th century, you see the this rise, in, especially in Jesuit thinking, of the, the tremendous importance of conscience. And as, as, as a sort of hedge against the, the overweening of law, I, I think in some ways that's the sandbox that Francis plays in mentally. But I could be completely wrong about that. You know, so, you know, I'm not a Francis scholar. or Francis. Let, me just, let me just follow up really quick and then go to Stephen. The yeah. fact that he simply has a different perspective, I think, is true. And I think it's actually healthy for Catholics to break out of a kind of papalatry. Popes can disagree with each other, and popes have always disagreed with each other. And good Catholics, can, I mean, I remember having a when I taught at a Catholic high school, I had an argument with a colleague, good natured but tense. And this man's perspective was two good Catholics, if they are both catechized correctly, cannot disagree about a theology. Oh man, and that's what and I'm trying to get. and Jerome, like, of course, well, yeah. this, this is see, a fruit of a kind of. I'm not blaming John Paul II at, at all, but. It's this kind of very flowery, nostalgic, weird post-conciliar Catholicism where there's this sort of celebrity worship of John Paul II and, you know, the catechism clarifies everything and there's no sort of historical consciousness of any kind. That kind of stuff is not sustainable and it had to be exploded. Maybe Francis has exploded it in ways that are imprudent or unhelpful or wrong, but he has exploded it. And I, I think agree with that. That's yeah. Actually, kind of, you know, what did he say? Make a mess. The question is, can the, me you know, <laughs> can the pieces be put back together in a healthier way? Well, that's interesting world. because right after he told the youth there in South America, make a mess, he said, but be sure you clean up your mess afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. that that's helpful. Yeah. But be sure you, in solidarity, he said, you be sure you're there to clean up the mess too. And I don't think John Paul bought into the whole papalatry thing or the, the no, sort of. But that, but that he, that he inadvertently fed it. He used the papacy as a bully pulpit to help bring down. He was geopolitical. But anyway, Stephen, go ahead. I'm, I don't want to get way off on that tangent. Well, I think I've got just two. I just enjoy. I just enjoy listening to you both. Um, uh, I I think there's just a couple of things I'd want to add. First of all, this kind of um, and, and you mentioned this before, Larry, but it, you know, it's one of the things of this kind of uh, you know. 24 hour news cycle and every time a pope says anything suddenly <clears throat> it's like news yeah um and and then and then suddenly everyone's saying oh you know you can't you can't put any sort of authority if it's not in a properly kind of you know dogmatic document then it doesn't mean anything you know like so if the pope says something on an airplane doesn't mean anything you know what are the levels of dogmatic weight and actually well that's 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 good dogmatic theology right yeah, yeah. the trouble is is that we have we haven't had that discipline for so long so like you, you know <laughs> you'll get very important uh you know principles cited i mean sean mentioned it earlier you know like 
Pius the twelfth gave a you know a, a, a you know a, a address to some midwives, and then that that enters the kind of you know the sort of the mental Denzinger, um, you know <laughs> absolutely. Or, you know, so we we we've had this kind of you know things that popes have said in 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 absolutely not dogmatic contexts being cited as though they were, you know, quasi infallible pronouncements. Okay. I know. Um, and and then suddenly the people who've been doing that and, and it's you know we 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 we've, we've been in this sort of it's been easy to get into at least for people of a certain mold theologically um then suddenly it's like oh you can't do that that's actually, why would you do that that's papalatry so i think there's yeah i think that probably there there is a necessary connect correction here from uh, but i mean no, it, I, it's I... interesting how you know we you know i'm sure that you know if if when obviously you know in, in in the distance future you know different papal styles different papal um uh types come in then you know the we'll, we'll just switch roles again you know i think yeah i think pope francis has exploded that papalogy yeah and i, so, and I agree um, with both of you then that this is a good thing so the and the other the other thing is um you know i i didn't mention it in the book because it it's 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 Quite a you know difficult topic to talk about, but this is whole thing. I, I do talk about this very important and very tricky statement on the Jews that the council makes that isn't in there in the original plan. It's clearly added in because John the Twenty Third wants it added in, but for all sorts of not just geopolitical reasons, but kind of ecclesial political reasons, it there's a whole question as to whether the council will say anything. Because it's read by Arab nations as being a kind of a, a political statement in favor of Israel. Right, right, right. And the Eastern Catholic churches, including people like Maximus Sai, you know, he's always cited as the great liberal progressive, is is very keen that that the council doesn't make statements like this, partly because they have to live in these countries, right? Hey, and this is an example of, of being bulletinized. I love this. This is yeah, great. And, and are aware of the political consequences of of any statement. But obviously, once the council has floated that it it might make a statement, it can't then not make a statement. So <laughs> Absolutely. This whole thing around the me a bomb gets planted in the Vatican um, around all this, um, and, and so there's. But the reason I mentioned this is because one of the things is this kind of issue around supersessionism, you know, whether, you know, yeah, Christ, yeah. you know, kind of completely, you know, yeah, the, the old covenant is kind of obsolete because of the new covenant. Now, it always strikes me in in, in uh, conciliar hermeneutics is that um, the, the two extremes, if you like, uh, are both conciliar supersessionists. I mean, you know, either, you know, it, it it seems ridiculous to me that you know we'll sort of say you know how wonderful it is that we've got rid of kind of uh, theological supersessionism with regard to the promises made to the Jews, which is of course how Lumen Gentium sixteen phrases right, this: you know, the right, promises right. are never revoked. Um, to then say that you know Vatican II suddenly you know supersedes all previous councils, um, yeah. but equally. It, it you know it makes no sense whatsoever to cite chapter and verse from every other council, and then to say, "Oh no, Vatican II, that yeah. one was a miss." Um, and and this yeah. is precisely the point that that, that Benedict makes that you can't yeah. yeah 
that that this very same authority that either gives Vatican to its foundation also applies to the others. And likewise, the very same foundation that applies to Trent or Nicaea or Vatican I must also apply to Vatican II. Um, so you have to have some kind of hermeneutic of reform. You know, every council, you, you do. don't call a council unless you want to change something. I mean, yeah, that's absolutely you know, true. Uh, uh, at some level of doctrinal formulation or practice or something, um, that's yeah. councils are, this is something else we talk about in the book. A council is a massive logistical ball ache. Um, I have not a phrase <laughs> I use in the book. Um, yeah, but you yeah. don't call them lightly. The editors cut that kind of stuff out. Which so. means that you only ever call them when it's too late. Oh, uh, gosh, no, isn't that true? Is the church is, by the way. The church is like, already, already, you know, always 100 years behind. I mean, Trent is a classic example. You know, like you, yeah, you, you, yeah. Call a, you get around to calling a council when the problem is already out of hand. And mm. so the council you call to solve that problem cannot possibly solve the problem. It may do other very critical things that need correcting, but it yeah. they certainly those those great councils never set out um and achieve what they said they were going to do yeah mm. and this is certainly true of Nicaea this is certainly true of Trent it's true of Chalcedon I mean you know we have these schisms that last to this day after Chalcedon mm. and Ephesus oh, uh, yeah so um, and, and Vatican II is the same it you know it it, yeah. it I mean I talk about this in, in a previous book Mass Exodus certainly <clears> in terms of you know, what the council sets out to do pastorally in Europe, which I think is a major reason why there's a council in the first place. Um, it says we need a council to, you know, solve this pastoral crisis. And it's yeah. by no means clear that the, the, the crisis is solved. <sighs> years I later. agree, you know, and my critics... And I say this, my, my, whenever I'm critical of Pope Francis, my, you know, the, the, the sort of where Peter is, critics come out of the woodwork to say, oh, you're, you're violating Catholic doctrine, you're being disrespectful to the Pope, and all these sorts of things. But in reality, I agree with both you and what, and what Sean was saying earlier, is that I think it's perfectly legitimate for Popes to disagree with one another. And I, and I think we, we, we have to explode this myth that every word that comes out of a pope's mouth is somehow of high magisterial weight. And therefore, if you criticize it, you're, you're somehow undermining the church's ecclesial authority. The fact of the matter is, I don't, I don't criticize Pope Francis because I think he's a heretic, as the trads say, or I think he's a horrible person, as others say. Blah, blah, blah. I just think he's wrong about a lot of stuff, okay? Theologically, I think he's just wrong. And so I say so. But that doesn't mean I think he's some sort of gross anti-pope or a horrible pope or these sorts of things. I just think, okay, I preferred the exegesis of JP2 and Benedict and their take on things to that of Francis. And so I say that. And so then they get criticized. Okay, whatever. But um, I, I, like, I like what you just said, though, uh, uh, Stephen, about about what the council, you know, was up to and what it was doing. Uh, and, and, you know, that it, it, in the same way, and we've been address this then, in the same way that in some ways we are now exploding the myth of the modern papacy and papalatry and ultramontanism and these things. It, it's also true that we can have an exaggerated sense, an overly romantic sense of a council, right? 
you know, that, that councils too have to be in a sense demythologized. And, and this is in no way denying that there is authority in the church. At least I don't think so. So uh, this maybe, you know, as we wrap this up a bit, uh, what then, what do all of these sorts of exploded myths now, broken myths, as Paul Tillich would call them, about papal, the aura of papal authority or the aura surrounding councils and the myth of constant material continuity and all things. When all of that is exploded, and as Sean said earlier, it just, you just, it just, can't, it just can't bear the weight any longer of, of, of reality. What then, what then is left of authority in the Catholic Church? Because I think that's the elephant in the living room that a lot of critics of the council and the modern popes, Francis in particular, I think this is what's lurking in the back of their heads. How do I reconcile that with why, why am I not then a Protestant? What, what, what's different between us and, say, the Anglicans then? What is Catholic authority? What is the authority of a council and so on? Now, that's well, not what you're Dave Urban, Larry, because it's all there. I mean, this is as far right. as I'm concerned, you know, Dave Urban sets out precise. This is where I mean, I converted to Catholicism while doing my doctorate on Vatican. And II. this is exactly what I was heading for. I'm glad you brought up because my friend, Father Robert Imbelli, believes Dave Verabum is the key to the entire council. Well, I believe so Intimorifica is, and Sean and I have found uh, okay. Well, you brought, up, you brought up Dave Verabum, so I'm going to exercise the prerogative candle. of the interviewer and say, Stephen's you must now like, talk. You know, yeah, I, I'll pull event, the Bolaventizer and make it intermirifica, which is like <laughs> universally panned as a kind of lame duck document. That's just to, that's just to you know, shock readers of the volume. He digs where the zag. It's that kind it's of thing. It's a very, it's a very like Oxford grad student thing to do. It's like, actually. Uh, you know, it's like oh, out of nowhere yeah, to, to try and find the most obscure bathroom in the palace and say, that's yeah, my favorite. Totally, totally. <laughs> Actually, no, I mean, Dave, uh, I mean, Dave Abbott is is ex is short as well. Dave, Abbott. it's it's pretty concise. It's it's a it's a really critical text. And I, you know, that scripture tradition in the magisterium. You know, Dave Urban ten or whatever it lays out. I mean, I think that's 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 where the authority is. And if you yes. and actually, that's almost you know if you look back at say Nicaea you look back at the Chalcedon you know it's precisely this it's that we have the scriptures we have the tradition and of course Dave Abbott doesn't really in my view it's not Dave Abbott's view is that the scriptures are themselves products of tradition and magisterium like yes, you know we yes so, yes you know we and 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 there's a sense in which scripture is a the, the tradition points to scripture as a particularly important part of itself essentially mm -hmm. um so i mean the the magisterium is you know again with a nuanced understanding of levels of magisterial authority and all sorts of stuff yeah um that's where it I, would say, I would say that that tradition slash magisterium would would say that scripture is the privileged loci yeah. within yeah. the tradition a privileged Okay. I'll tell uh, you something though, and this is possibly a fruit of Vatican II. Um, it's really I the last time we spoke was a book about nonverts about de-Christianization in America and how that's played out in different denominations. And one of the things that's really struck me after that book, and it hadn't struck me before, is it's remarkable how unified the Catholic Church is. Because 
we all, this, you know, there's constantly driven by debates and arguments and that kind of stuff. But if you, I mean, if you think, you know, what do Robert Barron, James Martin, Taylor Marshall, and, you know, I don't know, um, anyone else have in common? Well, it's probably about 95% of the of Catholic teaching. I mean, yeah. what we end up disagreeing hugely about is critically important, but it's a small proportion. And it's really striking that after the, you know, if you look at kind of any other major denomination, any other mainline major denomination, you know, the Episcopalians, uh, the Methodists, they've all splintered over all sorts of doctrinal yeah. moral issues, yeah. very acrimonious schisms. Apart well, from in, very, in the United States, slavery was the big one. Yeah, apart from very tiny schisms at both right and left, SSPX and, you know, kind of independent, women-led, right. you know, yeah. Catholics or something. Catholic churches or whatever. It, it's really striking to me how the fact that the Catholic Church keeps every keeps the arguments in. And, and I often think about, you know, you could say that, you know, you could have a very harmonious Thanksgiving dinner with all the family there where everyone got along if you didn't invite all the people who you disagree with, right? If like yeah, weird yeah. Uncle Fred wasn't in, you know, yeah. get to you all and that kind that of stuff. That stupid libertarian aunt of mine is not welcome here. Exactly. But if if you invite, it's a far yeah. healthier family if if everyone's there and you all disagree and bitch about each other. I yeah. think that's actually an important part. And and that's actually one of the achievements. <laughs> and it doesn't feel like an achievement, but it is an achievement. But it's a real achievement. Well, it's also, I, I have experience. I, I say that my daughter and I had this conversation one time about holidays and whatnot. Is it better to go to holiday with people who are good, kind, but boring and agree on everything? Or to go to a family that is utterly dysfunctional and quarrelous <laughs> and, and and but interesting and profoundly provocative. I, I would opt for door number two, quite frankly. And I, well, I think that's you're the element that makes that, Larry. Like you probably can't <laughs> be am. in. I am, I am, I am. I'm the irritated well, the apple that you know poisons the barrels, probably. I'm the sand in the bathing suit in everybody's <laughs> existence at those sorts of functions. Um we're kind of getting towards, but it, you, but you did get towards something that I really wanted to get at. And I sort of alluded to it earlier, and I, and I, I don't want to end without talking about this, which is I, I asked before, what is the enduring legacy of the council? And maybe that was a wrong way to put the question in terms of what it is I'm really looking for. Um, you And you've just alluded to Dave Araboom as an example of what I'm looking for, which is what primary theological developments did the council engage in? that really are significant. I'll just throw one. Obviously, my blog is called Gaudium It's Best 22. And I was deeply influenced by De Lubach and his book, The Drama of Atheist Humanism. And I consider the Christocentric anthropology of the council, Christocentrism in general, as the central motif of the entire council. And quite to the surprise of many people, when they find out that that Christocentrism was new, in many ways, in the modern history of Catholicism. I would consider that to be one of the most, and, you know, John Paul, I think, agreed, which is why his first encyclical was Redemptor Hominis, you know, which was a theological anthropology. 
so anyway, that's that's my take on the sort of light motif of the council that I think is very important. You've alluded to Dave, but I'm going to ask each one of you guys to maybe riff on that idea as well. So let's start with Sean, and then we'll go down to Stephen. Sean. Well, I, th- there's a, there's many many developments that we've spoken about: religious liberty, relationships with the Jewish people, you know, liturgy, of course, that, that sort of thing. But I think fundamentally, uh, if I had to kind of synthesize all of that. It was a, I think the most profound thing is actually the way that the council was able to go backwards rather than forwards. And, and what I mean, you're alluding to this because it's a race or smart motif that you bring up, which is that kind of anthropology is all over the fathers, the Greek oh, fathers, yeah. especially, right? And that's what these yeah. guys are eating. That's why they're so they're so energized by this and they think this can be this kind of evangelical explosion if we recover this. So I think what from my, the, the, the way that I look at it based upon what I study and the way I've studied it is the Catholic church at Vatican II is able to reach back and recover all these positive sources, motifs, ways of thinking, ways of acting, a whole sort of ethos before or behind a kind of anti-Protestantism, anti-Jansenism, anti-modernism, all of which in their time were reacting to real problems and to some extent were successful or good and to others' extents were sinful or wrong-headed. But the church is able to sort of reach back and say, okay, what does the office of Pope and Bishop mean when we're not fighting the Reformation battles, or what do we think about scripture reading and liturgy when we're not freaked out about Jansenist Italian synods or whatever the issue might be? So it's able to sort of go back. I call them the ghosts on the council floor. It's able to deal with the presence of these ghosts in a way that is honest or more honest, I should say, more honest and healthier than it was maybe in the 19th century or the early 20th century. I think that ironically fundamentally it's the success is in where vatican ii goes backwards uh rather than where it goes forwards oh, Although it does go forwards in the sense that it encounters you know uh christian democracy liberalism it, it does encounter the modern world in some ways in a positive way but the enduring theological content yeah is, yeah. is going back way back i think well that that take gets two big thumbs up from me yeah i agree with I, I thought a von Baltazar fan would would agree with that. So well, that kind of goes along with what I was saying too. But anyway, Stephen. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know any sort of grand, uh, you know, <laughs> big idea beyond you know beyond what Sean has to say. And and actually, one of the really I should say one of the really nice things about writing this book was was just how you know we've we've been friends for a long time. We've talked about all sorts of stuff for a long time. Um, it was just it was just so nice to to kind of co-author something where you know obviously there's little points we disagree on but you know it's it's actually but but we sort of probably you know round each other out in in that sense i think i mean it it was just so nice we sort of swim in different sources too yeah exactly 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 um and and so it was great i think so i i agree with everything sean says i i do think that one of the, the 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 big kind of light motifs of the council um and and you know, Sacrosanctum Concilium, you know, a point we make in the book is, you know, it's the first document to be promulgated and they Absolutely. use it to set out the store, right? So the first, yeah, it's called Sacrosanctum Concilium. It's not called like something to do with the liturgy. It's called this sacred council, right? 
Yeah. And it sets out what's this council about? And it gives you kind of four reasons what the council's about. You know, one's about ecumenism, um, you know, and, and the rest are kind of what I would call new evangelization. Um, and I, I do think that we don't have we don't have the phrase new evangelization, but the idea of the new evangelization is very much a motivating one of the council, as it had been, we talked about this about an hour ago, as it was in the for the generation of priests and bishops, particularly from Europe, because, I mean, we do talk about the yeah. church, you know, the council is this kind of world council and all that kind of stuff. But actually, the kind of the agenda, the great kind of drafters of the council, um, you know, are obviously coming out of a particular Western European context. Oh, so true. And you, yeah, you mentioned at the end of the book, a Vatican III would look very different. Yeah, and they're all deeply, you know, all of those kind of great parity of the council are all deeply concerned about, you know, the this this shift, which then John Paul II lays out in uh, uh, Redemptorist yeah. Missio, you know, you've got kind of, Classic mission territories, which, of course, is a big part of what the the rest of the church is dealing with at that time. You've got solidly established Christendom, you know, where the church is ticking along nicely. And then you've got this intermediate situation where we're moving from solidly established Christendom back to kind of classic mission territories. And it's squarely in that new evangelization context yeah. that so much of the energy of of the kind of the great you know spearheaders of of the counseling very much including de Lubac, who you just mentioned um and that's where they're coming from i agree i mean the council's often said oh it's just a pastoral council what that ignores though is that the pastoral aim of the council was was grounded directly at theological development of doctrine as a response to modernity and and so there was development of doctrine theologic so in many ways, my, my take on the council is this, is that it is, its strength is also its weakness, which is that it is, a, it is almost completely a, a, a council of theologians for theologians. Uh, it is a deeply theological council in a Euro-academic register, and that a future council can take the fruit of all that theology and maybe do something with it, but it's going to do it in a far more global setting. Uh, never again will any future major ecumenical council of the church be so Euro, Eurocentric ever again, um, which kind of is exciting and scary at the same time. <laughs> the next council could be a real Pandora's box. Uh, you it, know. Won't, it, won't be, it won't be boring. I would be no, worried. it will not be are, boring. They never are. They're never boring. No, Vatican II was not boring. That's for sure. Absolutely. Hey, guys, we should probably call this a wrap we've been at it for a little about about uh, two hours now uh but it seems like 15 minutes i love talking to you guys but you could listen uh, to most of the audio book in this time so <laughs> oh, that's true so uh, what are we what are we actually saying all right if we get to the end of this video we tell people you shouldn't have listened to this you should have listened to the audio book i don't <laughs> recommend audio books for anybody a, stu a former student of mine asked me today this book i recommended you know is that an audio form and i said Hence the problem. I <laughs> uh, no, 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 I absolutely yeah. disagree. I love audiobooks. Well, I, I don't have a commute, so I don't avail myself of them. But my friends who have commutes, uh, oh, yeah, 
Oh, and look, I had people say to me, you know, now this my videos that I do are now in Podbean audio podcast. People wanted to listen to it in their car. So I get all that. I get all that. And, you know, if you go to a Benedictine monastery, you know, over lunch, someone's reading a book to you. They read the book to you. That's it. Don't you? I, I just, um, yeah. Okay. I don't want to go down that road. Go. Uh, I'm opposed to audiobooks, damn it. And that's the final word. Uh, right. <laughs> no, but I, I do listen to them. So I'm a hypocrite, just like I'm a complete Luddite, but I, I do YouTube and stuff like that. So anyway, I want to thank both like of my guests today. <laughs> the book, the, do you say like uh, and subscribe? And, okay. And so kind of subscribe. You know, nothing I hate worse than a YouTube video where they, they begin, be sure you click the subscribe button down below. You know, smash no. that like button. But hey, that's <laughs> that's what Steven does at the beginning of every every no, I'm just kidding. Um the so the audio book is out, but the hard copy, if you're like Larry, comes out in America in the United States in May. So the UK in May. Can out. you pre-order it? Oh yes. Small. Okay. Easy. Very good. Get this book, but I'll go ahead and get the audio. Uh, version now and i should say that this book like you often like the the books that we write are like expensive books yeah this is like you it's know single right. digit dollars kind of book nine oh yeah my book my book on science and religion which was put out by tnt clark 20 years it was like 800 million dollars so you know i think three people bought it uh there were some libraries devoted to the jesuit religion that bought it and then i think Two guys in Singapore that hit the wrong button on Amazon bought it, and uh, that was it. That was it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, enough, enough, enough. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, I know Vatican II will continue to be a hotly debated topic. Get this book. I think it will be very, very eye-opening. I also like George Weigel's recent book on Vatican II, which also acts as a kind of very short introduction. Not that I want to push your competition in, in the market here, guys. Uh, but I, I just want my viewers to know, I want them to read on Vatican too. I do. Uh, and I, I really think it's important. And your book I think is, is really fantastic. And I thank you, Larry. thank you guys. Thank you. Okay. So we're going to, we're going to sign off now. Let's see where I am here. I'm going to stop.